Boy, it's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, we're continuing a series that we began last week on the book of Exodus. Last week, we went straight to Exodus chapter 6, and we looked at some uh, kind of overview th- themes in the story of Exodus that, uh, that we're going to see over and over again as a way of introing the book. This morning, we're going back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, uh, we're going back to the beginning. All right, hear the word of the Lord. This is Exodus 1, verses 1 through 22. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. And Joseph was already in Egypt, and then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pitham and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad." And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it, is, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives to him and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are vigorous. They're not like Egyptian women, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we come before you, your people, hearing your words given, given to your people and given to us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for writing these words and preserving them for us. I pray that you would uh, be at work right now teaching us just the way you would. Would you please tell us the story of Jesus again and renew our hearts? And will you please help me, your servant, to serve faithfully in these moments? 
that every word I say would be in fidelity to your character, O oh Lord, and for our good. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I don't really ever uh, spend a lot of time thinking about the titles for my sermons. Sometimes you might look at them and wonder, what was he thinking? And, and uh, to tell you the truth, I might do the same thing. Um, I certainly don't talk about them much, but I, I want to actually explain this one to you. Uh, dueling escalations. That might sound weird. Um, I give you that because I want to call attention to a, a pattern we see in this chapter that we're going to see over and over and over again in Exodus. Uh, the other reason I named it that is because it reminds me of an evening I spent at a dueling piano bar years ago. Let me explain. Uh, uh, this was when Sean and I were dating. Uh, shortly before, I think it, it couldn't have been long before we ended up getting, I think we were just getting to know each other. But one night we wandered into a dueling piano bar in St. Louis and, and everything about it was normal. And uh, there are two pianos up on a stage, if you've ever been to one of these places, and uh, nothing exciting was really happening. And people are milling about, Shonda and I are just talking to each other. That was the event of the night, was that I got to talk to Shonda. Um, but at some point, the atmosphere of the room completely changed. It was a little, little far into it. We saw a couple of guys stand up, and they were the ones that were going to begin playing the two pianos. And uh, those guys carried themselves with a different level of swagger, piano swagger. You all know what I'm talking about? Uh, they, they get up there, and it was like everything changed. All eyes were on them, and they were really quite good. And they were just playing hits that you knew of, like songs that you would recognize, and dueling back and forth the way, you know, that's the way it goes. But at some point, this is when it became magical. At some point, they started playing the song Johnny Be Good. Uh, Johnny Be Good is one of those iconic classic rock songs. It was written by Chuck Berry, who's also a St. Louis legend. So, it's, you know, they knew what they were doing, but they were amazing. It's got these uh, long, recognizable guitar riffs, except this was a piano, and they are just ripping, hammering away at their piano. And it started with them playing the song together uh, in harmony with each other. And then at one point, one of them takes over. And they begin exploring the boundaries of the song. I mean, just uh, improvising and making up stuff and trying new things all within the framework of the song. And then at some point, the other one takes over. And, th and they begin doing what they're going to do, exploring their own boundaries of the song. And, uh, and, go and it just goes back and forth like that over and over and over again. And it was so amazing. I mean, it was just amazing to witness. It was like everything in the room stopped. Servers and bartenders and people there, everybody was just attention trained on them because it was so incredible. He got the sense that they were competing with each other, that it was, it was escalating back and forth and they were competing with each other and our heads were like, it was like we were at a t tennis match, you know, with our heads going back and forth. What's this person going to do now? And what's this person going to do now? When we look at the book of Exodus, our heads are going to go back and forth like we're at a tennis match. And we're going to see escalations happening. And it happens pretty quickly in this passage. Uh, what, what's, what's going to happen now? What are they going to do now? Uh, we're, going to, we're going to see Israelite, the Israelites and the Egyptians going back and forth. We're going to see Moses and Pharaoh going back and forth. And we're just going to be, our heads are going to be going back and forth. And it's just going to escalate. There are going to be these dueling escalations. That's the pattern we're going to see over and over and over again. 
And we see it in this one, we see two, two escalations. First, we'll look at the Israelites in verses 1 through 7, and we'll see an escalation of strength. And then we'll look at Pharaoh and the Egyptians in verses 8 through 22, and we'll see an escalation of opposition. So escalation of strength and escalation of opposition. First, escalation of strength. I'm calling it an escalation of strength. Uh, because that's what the passage calls it. In verse 7, it says that they grew exceedingly strong. Well, what are the things that made them so strong? Uh, the first thing that you see in this passage is that there is a strength of their unity. Now, it begins by naming all of these brothers that come in. Eleven brothers, and then Joseph. Joseph is the twelfth brother. Uh, if you read Genesis, you kind of understand the story. All of those brothers are the sons of Israel, or the sons of Jacob. Israel is uh, Jacob's name that, that was given to him. And, uh, and when you look at their story in Genesis, you actually don't see a lot of unity. Uh, unity can't be assumed amongst these brothers. There's a uh, family history of deep, <laughs> deep difficulty. And sometimes it's really, truly ugly. Uh, but this passage is making the, the case for us that this group of 12 families actually becomes one tribe or one nation. It begins with the sons of Israel. And then at verse 7, you see that they become the people of Israel. It's, it's telling us that these 12 tribes uh, shared a common identity. That's a strength of unity. That's, that's what's being said. Uh, followed up by that, you also see a strength of numbers. They grew in numbers. It seems Moses is at great pains to tell us that as he uh, makes up new and a variety of ways of, of telling us that they grew exceedingly strong. He says they increased greatly, they multiplied, the land was filled with them. There are five different phrases he uses in that passage to, to communicate to us uh, just how rapidly they grew in population. Uh, just to give you a sense for what we're talking about here, it's the, this passage says that 70 came across uh, to join Joseph in England. That's uh, a little more than you can fit on a charter bus today, just to give you a picture. Charter bus, 55, 60 people. We're talking about 70 people. Not many, right? They're all coming over on their charter bus. And, uh, and then let me give you another number. In Exodus 13, is it Exodus 13 or it's Exodus, Exodus 12, you get another number. By the time the nation of Israel is crossing the Red Sea in their exodus, the number that Moses gives us there are 600,000 men plus their women and children. Now, it doesn't read this way, but I want to explain something to you. There, there are uh, the, the, the distance between, the, the amount of time between verse 7 and verse 8 is actually considerable. We're talking about many, many, many generations. Uh, the, based on what we know of the succession of Egyptian kings, what we know of the cities that are named in this text and archaeological evidence in those cities, most scholars, though not all, most scholars are comfortable saying that there existed somewhere between two and three hundred years between when the Egyptians, uh, sorry, when the Israelites came into Egypt and when the Exodus happened around 1500 or so. Whichever way you cut it, this story is making the claim of spectacular growth. Just spectacular growth. There must be something else going on here in this story, right? Even though God's name is not mentioned in these first seven verses, 
His fingerprints are all over it. Uh, look, it uses over and over again the language of creation when explaining how these people grew. If you look, it says that they were fruitful and increased greatly. Well, that's right out of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, 28, where God said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, all of this language comes out of the first two chapters of Genesis that, that Moses used here. He's, say, he's saying that, God, that, that not only are the Israelites doing what God originally commanded Adam and Eve to do, uh, but that God is at work increasing their number, and, and, and so much so that the earth became full of them. That, it says they multiplied greatly. Well, that Hebrew word could be translated swarming. Uh, it's the same word that's described when God filled the sea with fish and the air with birds. It's, they swarmed out. But God causes the people, the land to be full of them. And so he increases their strength, their strength in unity, their strength in numbers, and the strength of, their, of his favor was upon them. That's the idea that's, that's, that, that's given them. The original readers would have read that and say, yeah, God's at work in all of this. Now, what's missing? You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, it's not so much what's there as what's not there. I couldn't help but wondering, and we don't know because the Bible doesn't say this, or this text doesn't speak to it, but I kept wondering about what, what does the content of their relationship with God look like at this point? Like, were they a faithful people? Uh, were they a prayerful people? Were they a thankful people? Were they attentive to God at all? It just looks like they were growing and they were comfortable and this was a good spot for them. But what did their relationship with God look like? I came across a story that is just, um, man, I really hope it's true. Uh, I found it in three different places and it's just seems like a crazy story. Uh, the, the sources I found seem reliable, but you can check it out for yourself. There's a story about Jack the Baboon, okay? Jack the Baboon. 1881, Cape Town, South Africa. There was an employee for the South African Railroad Company named, his nickname was Jumper. And it's, because, it's a bad nickname. This is, this is the kind of nickname guys give each other, I think. But it, he got this nickname because uh, he was a switch operator, for the, uh, for the, uh, at the Port Elizabeth Railway, Railway Station, he was a switch operator, which determined which trains went where as far as when they went through the intersections. Really important job. Bad things could happen if you screw that job up, right? But he was also known for uh, jumping from car to car and sometimes from train to train on moving trains. And he had a bad accident and, uh, and he lost both his legs right below the knee. And so his buddies nicknamed him Jumper. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a bad name. Uh, but he got worried that he was not going to be able to do his job anymore and uh, that this, this injury was going to keep him from doing his job. And he came across a baboon in the market in Cape Town and was somehow so impressed for whatever reason by this baboon that he bought the baboon on the spot from his owner, bought him. And he thought, I can train this baboon to do my job. And then so he, brought, he began bringing Jack the baboon to work and uh, as the story goes, for years, Jack the Baboon was controlling the switches at the Port Elizabeth Railway Station, and nobody noticed. Nobody noticed. Why did nobody notice? 
because nothing went wrong. As soon as something goes wrong, you know people are going to notice right away, right? But records tell us that Jack the Baboon had a, uh, had a perfect record, no blemish on his record as an employee of the railway company. Why am I telling you that story? I'm telling you that story because it's just so easy to become desensitized to the fundamental need that we have for God when everything's just going well. Like when we're comfortable. Uh, when it's, when they, like, and some of us know, some of us feel that way right now. Some of us just feel like, man, life just feels, we're, in, we're on a good path right now. Uh, I'm not feeling a lot of opposition. Uh, I've felt success at my work. My family feels good right now. I kind of have the things that I've been asking for. I, I enjoy my work, you know. Um, and in that moment, it can be very easy to just lose the sense of the need we have for God who's in control of all things. We, can lo- we don't lose our need for it, but we can lose our sense of our need for it. And so wherever you are on this, I just want to ask you the question. Uh, I want you to ask yourself the question, are there ways that my life with Jesus has become dull or lifeless or even thankless? Are there, are there ways that my life with Jesus has lost its sense of gratitude or joy? It's a good question. It's a question we can all ask ourselves. And some of us need to, some of us need to ask that question. Some of us here do not need to ask that question. Some of us here do not have that sense of our own lives or our own season in life. Uh, some of us know how uphill life can feel or how just how difficult it can feel. And some of us even can resonate, even somewhat, even though the story of the oppression of these Israelites is so terrible, some of us can look at it and resonate somewhat with what it means that God's people were experiencing an escalation of opposition across the board. Uh, The king, there's a new king in Egypt Those are ominous words that open up this story. I want to talk about why he opposes these Israelites, how he goes about it, and who he's actually opposing. Why, why, how, who? First, why. The text gives us two reasons that he is is opposing these Israelites. The first is ignorance. Um, The first is that he just, it says he did not know Joseph. Now, remember what I said about the timeline here. The stories of Joseph, no doubt, probably resounded in uh, the mythology of the royal courts through the years. But it's saying that this new king or the pharaoh of Egypt uh, it has no regard for Joseph's work in serving the pharaohs of old. He has no regard for the ways the Egyptians flourished, for how, uh, for how uh, wise... Uh, Joseph was, for how Joseph's advice to the the king of Egypt actually saved the Egyptians from starvation during the the famine years. He has no regard for that. So that's the first thing, is that he just simply doesn't know. He's ignorant about these things, and he becomes ignorant about the people of Israel um, itself. The other is that is fear. 
I mean, you just see fear written all through this story. He didn't understand them, so he became afraid of them. And you see fear, the rhetoric of fear in verse 9. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. He just sees them as, uh, as, as having potential to harm Egypt. He doesn't actually see anything they've done to harm Egypt. He's just uh, looking at them and he's afraid of them. So he doesn't know them and he's afraid of them. And this means that he presides over establishing a culture of fear in the whole country of Egypt. His fear trickles into the whole country. You see the Egyptians, verse 12, were in dread of the people of Israel. Do you see how the, the rhythm of this? I don't understand it. Uh, and so I became afraid of it, and now I want other people to be afraid of it too. Do you see? That's exactly what happened here. Do you see that? That's why he opposes it, and that's the rhythm you see. Now let's talk about how he opposes it. Probably the, the most difficult... Uh, <laughs> one of the hardest things about looking at this story is seeing that he cloaked... The, this work of oppression under the veil of wisdom. He said, let us deal shrewdly with them. Uh, shrewd is wisdom language. And it's, it's the kind of way that he convinced these people to rise up and oppress them. And, uh, and it, in every way, what you're looking at here is an escalation of oppression and all kinds of oppression, spiritual oppression, physical emotional, social oppression. These people are being oppressed in the worst, worst kind of ways. And, it, and it's so awful, it's hard to read. If you look at verse 12 through 14, you're going to see seven different words used to describe this oppression. And one author said that comes like each one, like a crack on the back. We will oppress will make their lives bitter, will treat them ruthlessly. We will oppress, we will oppress, we will oppress. I don't know the stories, all of the stories that are in this room. I know some of them, but I don't know all of them. Um, I don't want to presume that, I don't want to presume on your stories, but I think you know something of, of what this might feel like. Even if you don't know what it means to be enslaved, you might know something of what this is like. Words like affliction and bitterness might resonate with you. You might understand that. And it might lead you to ask all sorts of questions. Uh, look at this story. They didn't do anything wrong. Somebody decided that they were a problem. I mean, you know what that's like to be, to be living a life and somebody you've never met before makes a decision and it impacts you in a dramatic way and it, it harms you. I mean, you know, you know what that's like. And one of the things Peter tells us is that we're going to... Um, we're, one of the ways that we will suffer in this life is because of our identity as, the, as those who belong to Jesus Christ. He said, don't be surprised. And he knew what he was talking about when he said that. 
And there are times when our heads can just move back and forth. We can be bouncing back and forth over and over and over again between staring at these promises that we have that are one for us in Jesus Christ and staring at our suffering, the ways that we suffer. And it's always on a meme, right? You you find a meme and it's somebody wrote Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you. And we're trying to like square that passage with what my experience is and try and make those things work. And it's like, what am I going to be fixated on today? What's going to be true today? I want to tell you that that's a common experience And it can be very, very hard, and it can be crazy-making, and it can be exhausting. And the the question for us is, where do we go when we experience that? Where do we turn? Do we withdraw? I mean, that's common. Sometimes we withdraw. Sometimes, you know, maybe if I bury my head in the sand somewhere and it'll pass by and I just need to weather this? Or do we fight back? Do we like do whatever we can to try and get control back and make our lives what we want them to look like again? Is that what we do? Where do we turn? What are we searching for? We're searching for hope. Where are we going to turn for hope? I want to tell you, I want to make sure you see two things in this passage. I want to make sure you see two things in this passage. Ultimately, this passage is pointing us to find our hope in Jesus. This is where do we hope for rescue or salvation? It is pointing us toward there. But it is like laying the breadcrumbs on the path in a few different ways. It's saying the people, even, even in their oppression, have sturdy reason for hope. And the first is because it paints this work of oppression as a work of futility. Did you notice that? There's a passage there that says that the more he oppressed them, the more they multiplied. It's telling us that it's not working, that he's trying to oppress them. In fact, nothing's working for the Pharaoh. Nothing works for the Pharaoh. He's this person of great power, and he's executing this oppression, and, uh, and it's an act of futility. Here's the other thing. It is, this story is telling us that, uh, that this Pharaoh is actually foolish. He claims to be wise, but it is showing us all the ways that he's not wise. Uh, first, let's square these two things that he did. See the escalation. First, he enslaves the people, and he wants to profit off of them as a workforce. And then he wants to eliminate a generation of males. Right? Like, those two things don't work together. Okay? It, it's just written into the story that he's acting foolishly. He's reacting very quickly trying to solve a problem, and it's not going to get him anywhere. But, but the, the, the amazing thing is that his foolishness is exposed the most by these two women that are written into the character, uh, that are written into the story, Shifra and Pua. It is profound that they are named and not even the king of Egypt is named. They are named and their names are treasures. To, I think these women are heroes in this passage. Uh, because why? Because they stand up to Pharaoh. They stand up by not doing what he told them to do. And, and they lied about it. Now, let me, as you can imagine, a lot has been written, <laughs> a lot has been written about this. 
Uh, was it, was it uh, right that they lied? Is it right that they disobeyed? How do we understand the Christian call to obeying uh, our earthly authorities and, and, uh, and yet disobey when they call us to sin? Like, how do, we, how do we make sense of that? I appreciate a lot of the work that has been done in our, as a part of our Christian heritage and trying to make sense of this. Um, I, I would tell you that I think Shifra and Puah are heroes, and this is an example of, a, like, of a civil disobedience, one of many that you find in the biblical story. But I'll also tell you, I don't think that that's the major point that this story is making. The major point that this story is making is that Pharaoh believed the lie. Who believes this lie? Uh, they are vigorous. And they give birth before we get to them. Who, believe, who believes that lie? Not once, not once. Have you ever made it in time? Really? This is showing us that foolishness runs deep in the heart and the work of this Pharaoh. And it lie, futility and foolishness lies deep in the heart and the work of this Pharaoh. And it is showing us that when he picks a fight with God's people, he's picking a fight with somebody else, somebody he's no match for, somebody he has no understanding of, somebody whose wisdom far transcends his own. In a couple of chapters, we're going to hear, we're going to hear God say, Israel is my firstborn son. You're eliminating sons, but you are messing with my firstborn son. And he speaks about them with what looks like just increasing affection. And here's one of the points of the gospel that you see. What did they do to deserve it? What have they done? Like, what do you see in this passage that they've done? The point is, is that God's favor is steady. Even when, this, even when there's times of great fruitfulness, even when there's times of great oppression and everywhere in between on this continuum, God's favor on them is what's constant. And that's what matters. That he never removes his hand of blessing from them. It is constantly on them at all times. And they didn't do anything to earn it. It is a piece of God's fundamental character that he would love his people in this way. And so what does he do? He says, these people are not your people, they're my people. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is telling the story of the Exodus before a bunch of temple authorities, and he describes this as God raising his mighty arm with an outstretched hand. And saying, I will fight for my people and I will rescue them. There was a time when the king of Egypt was thought of as an instrument of the gods. And here God is saying, I am the one true God and I come to rescue my people. And we need to remember these words. We need to remember them because life is so full of things to be thankful for and things to be afraid of. In fact, I would say most of life falls into one of those two categories, the things I'm afraid of and the things I'm thankful for. And our heads can bounce back and forth like we're at a ten tennis match. And what am I going to be, what am I thankful for and what am I afraid of? 
We can bounce back and forth. And you know, I think the disciples, I think the disciples really felt that way a lot in their lives. As they wandered through uh, Galilee with Jesus following him, coming to believe that he was the very son of God and that he was going to win a great victory. And they watched his popularity amongst the people grow and his influence grew and more and more people were drawn to him because he fed them, right? There was escalating strength and there was escalating opposition to him. Remember in the beginning of Jesus' stories, often you had... You had a lot of people, that, like temple authorities, that would come up and they just wanted to kind of check this guy out. Who, what, what's he doing? You know, I want to understand who he is. He came out of nowhere. And that grew and that grew and that grew. That escalated into opposition that actually sought to eliminate him. And when Jesus walked into Jerusalem on a donkey to the praise of the people, calling him their king and their Messiah, I think the disciples must have felt... That this was the victory. This was it. And three days later, I mean, think of the whiplash. And then three days later, they are watching him hang on a cross. That must have felt like complete defeat. But the wonder of the cross is that what looks like Jesus' defeat is also his most profound victory. Because what does he do there? He frees us from bondage. He frees us. He rescues us. He frees us from our bondage to death, from our bondage to sin, from our bondage to a broken world that we are trying to make a life in. He frees us from those things. One person said, in Exodus, we hear the first strains of a melody that becomes a symphony in the Gospels. Let me ask you, can you hear the symphony? Can you hear the symphony that this is pointing to, that your, that your king is also your rescuer and your redeemer, who promises you new, li- you new life in him? Can you hear the music playing? Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, I pray that you would be exalted in our hearts and you would be the object of our greatest hopes. Would you give us this grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.